Welcome to the podcast, Cutting for Sign. I'm Ron Cecil, men's life coach and writer, together with my co-host, best friend and artist, Daniel Penner-Klein. Throughout our lives and as friends over the past decade, we've asked, how do we find the clues and puzzle pieces that align us with our higher potential? Join us as we converse with experts, artists, adventurers, mental health professionals, and fellow deep thinkers as we cut for sign and attune our own potential, mental health, and creativity. like the sky. Hey everybody, welcome to Cutting for Sign. Ron Cecil here. Daniel Penner-Klein, love seeing you, man. Oh yeah, nice to see you. Yeah, it's rock and roll. Dr. Robert Glover, you are author of No More Mr. Nice Guy and Dating Essentials for Men, as well as the director of TPI University, a series of courses that helps people become totally integrated individuals. For much of your early life, you considered yourself one of the nicest guys one could meet. You wanted to treat people well, but in your early 30s, you found yourself frustrated, resentful, confused, and to the people closest to you, not so nice. You had an agenda, no boundaries, were indirect, passive-aggressive, and not so honest with yourself or others at times. You heard the same thing from many men around you as well as, uh, and noticed the roadmap for these passively pleasing men unconsciously influenced every area of their lives. In the early 90s, you started your first No More Mr. Nice Guy group for these men and published the book in 2003. Robert, you believe in intention into action, safe spaces to break free from habits and the transformation from passive, resentful victimhood to empowered, integrated adults. Dr. Robert Glover, all right, welcome to Cutting for Sign. Damn, I'm going to have you write all my intros. <laughs> <laughs> I say it a lot, but Daniel, that's kind of his superpower. That's Daniel's a supervisor. Yeah, he's yeah, he's, he's a zone of genius. Gathering <laughs> information about somebody that they might not even know about themselves, and then <laughs> and then and then like handing it to them and going, "This is you." Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, especially coming from like where we started talking, you said keep it as short as possible. People write some weird things, so that means a lot, man. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> yeah, I do well, put a, a lot of effort into those. Yeah, Doctor Glover, it, it uh, do we want? Do you do you do you want us to call you Doc or Robert? My, yeah, it's, it's too late to be asking that question. You should have asked me that before you started the recorder. That's a good um, point. Well right. said. Well said. Well let's, said. Let's go with let's go with Robert. That's yeah, perfect. that's that's how I know you, Robert. Um, I was just just telling Daniel how I first came across your book. Um, first of all, the men I work with, this is your book, No More Mister Nice Guy, is is required reading, and and before I even. Uh, Kind of came down to Mexico and worked with you for that weekend uh, back in April. It was already way into my radar. I'd been into my lexicon for a long time, and and the way I found it was uh, I was telling Daniel earlier that years ago, probably ten years ago, my wife and I, maybe maybe eleven or twelve, actually, we were in a solid fight, and it was one of those fights where you, I tend to feel remember the feeling of the fight, and we were uh, slinging arrows and and went from passive aggressive to aggressive aggressive and then she you know pulled the arrow back let it go and this one like hit the bullseye and she goes ronnie i think you are codependent and and i it brought me to my knees yeah because <laughs> that, I, that was I, the low blow huh? that was it man <laughs> that was totally it and that started me on a process of of number one i didn't really i wasn't really sure what that word meant right and and all i thought was Oh shit! She thinks I'm needy for her, and damn it, I think she's probably right. 
Um, and I went down this path and I started going to um, a codependency anonymous meeting and, and looked around the room. I was like, why am I the only dude in here? What's wrong with me that I'm the only man in this room? And that led me to a, a book after another book. And then finally, I think I was searching for codependency for men because it seemed to be at least at that time in history and at least with the book titles and stuff, codependency looked like a kind of issue that women were dealing with more than men. And, and you say, I've heard you say in person that um, sometimes there's a father wound that we have and that father wound will cause us to have a, an anxious attachment to women, to women in our life. And that has always resonated with me. And so when I picked up your book, I did what a lot of guys did, which was open it, read the first four or five, six, seven pages, and then close it because it hit too close to home. How many years did it take before you picked it back up again? That's, <laughs> I think it took me a couple of years. I think you're right. And I've heard that a lot too. Yeah. yeah. And since then, you know, it's interesting is that is I'm rereading it with a client right now and it's it's holding up like super solid. It doesn't feel like it was written in 2003. It feels like it was written yesterday. It's so fresh. Well, a couple thoughts. Number one, it wasn't written in 2003. I, mm. I probably finished writing it five years before it actually got published. Oh, wow. So I, yeah. I, I wrote it over 25 years ago. Yeah. And, you know, I I went back to New York four years ago to, to reread the audible. The original audible version was read by a, a voice. Mm -hmm. And um, so I've heard I, that I, one. And, and yeah, and he kept saying covered contracts instead of covert contracts. <laughs> um, and, and so I, I told my agent after a few years, I says, you know, I, number one, I, I want an international distribution because it's only available in North America. Mm. And I said, I want to read it. So they canceled that contract. It, it expired. And, um, and like the company got back to me in two weeks and um, gave me a $75,000 advance to, to stay on with them and come read it and paid me to go to New nice. York. So, you know, my agent says, we suggest you take this offer. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I, I was reading it like four years ago. And, and of course, you know, when I was writing, it took me five, six, seven years to write. Yeah. You're in the middle of it. You're, you're just, I'm, I'm deep in it. And, you know, you think it's good. You think it's worthwhile. You're not sure. And then when I read it to, for, for the audible version, you know, about four or five days in a recording studio four years ago, I still cried at parts of it where I really the people that I wrote about the, the breakthroughs yeah. that they'd had, the changes in their wow. life. I smiled at it. Um, and I thought, I like this. I'm proud of it. It's good. Hmm. And, and, and maybe what even the biggest takeaway was is because, you know, I, I, I I'm still involved in men's work. I'm in my own men's program that I participate in. I meet a lot of men that are in their own personal recovery. And there's a lot of ways to approach personal recovery. Mm -hmm. And not, not everybody's, quote, a nice guy. A lot of guys have different stuff going on in their lives. And as I was reading it for the Audible, it really dawned on me that the book really isn't for nice guys. It, it really yeah. is a, a just a pretty good manual for how do you be a man in, in today's day and time. Yeah. So um, that, that made me feel good. You know, again, this is 20 something years after I'd written it to feel like, like you say, it's held up well. Yeah. I'm glad you said that we brought that point up about nice guys. I, I would definitely put myself in the nice guy camp. I mean, I would just want to get that loud and clear that that's something I've for sure working through the people pleasing and trying to hide my flaws and hide my imperfections so that I appear like I'm more than I am. 
But in my working with guys, I've also noticed that this applies to the kinds of dudes who, who are, uh, I wouldn't say overt, but honest, just more honest than I have been about who they are and their issues. And these guys look like first responders and, and, uh, ex baseball players and, and things that aren't, you know, quote unquote, the nice guy thing. And, and the lessons that they've learned from it are changing their lives too. And, and it's profound and humbling for me to go, this is, this is a path that I need to keep on for myself, for sure. Because it's the more I stay on it, the more I'm able to talk about it with other guys. Dan and Daniel's been had this like side, uh, you know, courtside seat in my life watching me deal with this stuff. And, I, and it probably in some ways, I don't know if you've ever identified Daniel as a nice guy. Have you? Have you ever said that about yourself? Like the Robert Glover nice guy? Yeah. <laughs> the Robert like the Glover. Good, no, the, the capital the N, fellas. capital capital N, capital G nice guy. I know. When you wrote you wrote capital N, capital G on one of your things, and I was like, that's what I would write if I was referring to the Goodfellas nice guy. You know, like <laughs> no, maybe it would be the quotes. Like there's, quote. one, there's one and the other, but you know, I I when I think of nice guy um and how it manifests with me, people pleasing, um, not wanting to rock a boat. Mm. Uh I it's different it manifests itself differently than yeah. it does for you, Ron, in, in general. But I do have that experience in the articulation and work, you know, that we've been in the fine point we've been putting on it since you know you did did the certification with Robert and you've been speaking more and using the terms in, in that book. Um I've I've been able to look back at myself at how I do that. And then and I'm sure you know way more about this, Robert, than we than I do. But I did recently. I think it was on an Insta reel or something. It said how um, people pleasing can be an effect of having experienced an unsafe or traumatic experience earlier in life, and therefore you don't want people upset around you. Mm -hmm. So therefore you don't want to upset people. So you're always doing things to keep the status quo and not and keep people happy. Yeah. And I was like, okay. I do that in this way or that way, or with yeah. specific types of people, maybe more around women, you know, and, and so it's really been extremely helpful. I think that it's one of the top things as I understand it. And as I gather up, you know, all these priorities we have when we're looking to become more authentic and, and grow up, you know, later in life, um, you know, not people pleasing, recognizing when you do and how you do in the subtle ways that might hold you back um, and keep us from being authentic. It's one of the areas where there's the most most growth, I, I feel like. And that's really what, you know, if you were to say, Robert, what was No More Mr. Nice Guy about? It really is the words you just used, be, hmm. learning to be more authentic and growing up. Right. And, you know, children are, are natural people pleasers because we, we are dependent on the people we're trying to please. They they have control over our well-being. Yeah. I, I yeah. remember first child development course I took in grad school. And first thing I remember, but about the one thing I remember, I actually remember a few things. But one was, is that a child's greatest fear is abandonment because yeah. abandonment equals death. So anything that feels like abandonment to a child and, and children experience everything with their feelings, right? And they're, 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 the prefrontal cortex thinking part of our brain doesn't even start coming on online till a few years old, but we're born feeling. So anything that, you know, a, a parent's frown, you know, a loud voice, a sharp tone, um, screaming in the background, not getting fed when we're hungry, not being picked up when we're cold, all of that 
creates abandonment experiences that all raise the specter at an emotional level of death. And, and you know, I, I've, I've been working on this stuff for 25 plus years. And, and the other thing, when I was reading it in New York a few years ago, as I was reading, I go, oh, fuck, I still do that. Oh, I got, I'd gotten out of that and I'm back in doing it again. Yeah. And, and, and that, that's still good advice to yeah. me to take. Um, cause you know, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm married for the third time. I'm, I'm, I'm a relationship guy, but I've bumbled my way through every relationship. I, I, I got a PhD in marriage and family therapy at 29, which it probably actually gave me no real help of how to do a, a relationship in a healthy way. Mm. But for example, um, my wife and I, we've been married five and a half years. You, Ron, you met Lupita, yeah, right? She yeah, Lupita. Probably yeah. the house when you're here. It's awesome. Um, short little Mexican woman, um, fireball, grew up eight out of 10 kids in poverty in Guadalajara, Mexico with an alcoholic father and a mother that didn't protect her from anything. And so she's had more abuses and traumas than anybody should ever have. But she's just the sweetest, generous, most big hearted person I know. And, but, but it's funny, you know, here's this, you know, short little Mexican woman that I call my wife and, and she'll get this look on her face, just a downturn of her mouth a little bit, or her, her respiration will change a little bit, or I'll, I'll, I can sense energetically she's closed off. I will, I'll, I'll watch myself have a panic hmm. of, of, of have my anxiety get triggered. Yeah. And, and it's just an, oh, fuck anxiety now there's no image attached to it there's no image that i'm gonna die i know she's not gonna leave me she has my my initials tattooed on her front hips uh and she loves me dearly um but she you know she has her issues and her woundings and her projections and and her fears and her insecurities and her ruminating brain and she'll get caught up in you know imagining something and i can feel it and sense it and I, I, I'll, I'll just watch myself go into overdrive. I got to fix this. I got to fix it now. I got to mm -hmm. get it better. We got to talk about it. We got to get this cleared out. We got to get over this. And, 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 you know, it's just really old emotional stuff from yeah. going back to childhood when a parent being mad at you, upset at you, not available to you, upset about anything, really. Yeah. You know, children yeah. internalize it must be about me. Um, as as a, an ex-girlfriend used to tell me, Robert, you're so narcissistic. It's not all about you. I can just be in a bad mood. I go, okay, great. That's good information. Thanks for telling me that. Um, but but we do carry that emotional stuff with us in adulthood, whether it's like this context or it shows up in lots of different contexts. Yeah. But for me, if we can practice being the observer of these emotional states, these emotional reactions, these emotional survival mechanisms that kick in, um, man, there's a lot of good information in there. There's a lot of growth that can come out of that. And that's, that's one of the things that Ron and I have experienced and we have this kind of, it's a gift to be able to spend so much time uh, looking at each other and observing, uh, reflecting and carefully gathering information too over years and consistently being able to reflect back what's going on and one one thing that i think we've that i've noticed with this process of like i just call it kind of growing up you know maturing um late in many cases latently um with ron is is like i start to pick up where i feel and that he is 
people pleasing around me. The last, <laughs> like the last person is probably his wife or something, but like yeah. I'm detached enough for him to like, I would be even easier to piss off or to something like that. And so we have created a really safe and, and encouraging environment to be like, I, I don't think you're being authentic with me. Like a lot of times, and I, I Ron trust me to um, air his dirty laundry in a way that doesn't sound too stinky. You know, we'll but, see. I get the final edit on all this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's good. Go. But like sometimes with we had a, a a conversation around active listening, and I realized yeah. one day I was like, Ron people pleases me by active listening, and it's in a way that gets in the way of his own original thoughts. It gets in the way sometimes. Sometimes it gets in the way of him disagreeing with me. And like, to be honest, like his, his mind and the things that are in, he's a special person. He's a great storyteller. He has a ton of experiences in life that are just very unique and synchronistic. He remembers them well and has the ability to tell them half the time when he's listening to me and agreeing and I can, and I can tell he's not really agreeing. I'm like, what you're thinking right now is more interesting than what I'm saying. I guarantee it. It's like, give me that. I, I then, love that feedback. I, I think every human being needs a friend that can do that. And I'm smiling when you're talking about the act of listening. Like I said, I'm yeah. a therapist. I'm a therapist by training. I've, you know, my job is to train couples, train people out how to have better relationships. And um, and I've never like been a fan of the like the canned active listening type yeah. stuff. So what I hear you to say is that. You're, you're really feeling pissed off at me right now. So what I hear you're saying is you'd really like to take an ice pick and stab me right now. And, you know, <laughs> I tell you what, if you hear a person say enough times, what? so what I hear you saying is this, you do want to take an ice pick and stab them with it. <laughs> because, you know, yes, we want to be heard. Huh. And and I, I, I get it takes some kind of practice and in, in a, in a, yeah. a, a canned way maybe to you know, help us, you know, practice listening because, um, I, I don't know about Ron, but I, I'm a therapist and I'm a terrible listener. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm always kind of like, okay, I've heard enough, you know, let's, <laughs> let's, let's actually get to the point and get some shit done here. Um, and so I, I have to practice being a, a better listener as a coach and therapist, but, but I like that, that you, you cut through and let's just get down to the authentic stuff. Well, right? Well, what do you really think and feel and want? Right. One of the main ways that people, people please is by agreeing when they don't agree. Uh -huh. and even, I agree with you on that. <laughs> you know, it's like kind of having, having a discernment about whether or not you agree with something that someone says, and then being able to potentially choose whether or not to voice that. Because I'm not saying it's yeah. always right, but I just I've, I've observed people and I'm just like, wow. Because if you constantly do that to yourself, if one constantly does that to himself, you build resentment like toward the world because you're never saying your thing you know yep. what i mean i do know what you mean I've, I, I've done that been there and coached a lot of guys that do that and that's i'm, I'm so gonna go, unwind go this a little bit daniel yeah hit me with it because there's two there are two things going on with me and um when i when this happens and number one like robert said i i am not a good listener it takes like everything in me to try really hard to stay focused and be in there, um, to not daydream, to not hear a phrase or a word you say, and to let that phrase or word send me down a rabbit hole. Mm. And then sometimes what my brain starts doing isn't, isn't um, even pertinent to the conversation anymore, right? Now I'm thinking about song lyrics or some shit like that. So the people pleasing almost becomes an automatic response. I'm not even conscious that it's coming out of my mouth half the time. 
And I've, and I've caught myself doing that on the podcast with you where I'm listening to the conversation again, editing and like, oh shit, I wasn't even conscious. I wasn't even even like awake (laughs) when that was going on. That's valid, right? The, what you just said about your brain doing the duck duck, duck and down turns. But the thing is, is that I think that if, as you, because I can already see you're doing it and it's been a joy to be a part of, that's part of your, your superpower is your brain goes, it like plays an improv game. And, and ideas come, you don't, you don't freeze. Like you don't have ideas. It sounds like you've just got so many ideas, but what I've noticed is when you and I in conversation, follow those and relate them to what we're talking about or choose the ones that do relate, yeah. it can just make for lovely conversation and really authentic and really unique, you know, and as that, and that conversation ends up being an artistic expression almost by you because it's your brain creating, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe there's some bullshit. Like, do you buy that? Well, Maybe I'm off. Well, well, yeah. <laughs> but that only happens when people are not censoring and, mm-hmm. and not, not thinking, well, what do I need to say? How, what do I need? You know, and that's, and that's such a, a nice guy pattern, you know, and, and we're, we're using the term nice guy a lot. And, and I know you have women listeners and, and it sounds like, you know, a bunch of them. Um, these same patterns apply to women. Yeah. nice girls existed long before nice guys because a lot mm-hmm. of nice guys were trained to be nice guys by their nice girl mothers um but but you know as you guys were talking about i was thinking about something else a story <laughs> i could tell while you were talking <laughs> um i remember one of my earliest experiences in therapy um was talking to a woman therapist and i worked with her for several years and joined i was in a men's group she led but i remember one of our earliest sessions i I was kind of complaining about my wife could go on this is my second wife could go on just talking about shit on and on and on and you know i just oh man i'd want to go to bed i'd want to do anything but sit and listen to her talk and you know and i wasn't authentic I, i wasn't actually being very loving i wasn't even listening i was just how can i fix this how can i get her over it uh, you know, the whole thing, squirrel. Oh, look, you know, anything to distract it. And I was telling this woman therapist this, and she said, well, you don't have to listen. And I mean, it just took hmm. me by, I said, yeah, you do. I, I said, it's, that's carved in stone. If a woman wants to talk, you have to listen t- until they're done talking. And I go, I know my mother taught me that because I did. I had to listen till she was done talking. And, and the therapist hmm. said, no, you don't. And I said, okay say that again. I need to hear it again. Mm. She said, just because your partner wants to talk doesn't mean you have to listen. I go, well, what do you do? And she said, well, you can just say, I'm not interested or I'm too tired or I have other things on my mind. Or and I go, you don't know my wife. That is not going to go over well. She will not be pleased if I have any reason whatsoever for not wanting to sit and listen to her talk until she's done talking. And I'm not making this up. It, it, it could be hours. She loved starting conversations 11 o'clock at night. And she was happiest if they went on till like three in the morning. Oh know? boy. And, and, you know, so I thought I got to listen till they're done. So I thought, I, I don't know that I even believe this, but what finally I was listening to a conversation. It wasn't a, co- a conversation actually has flow to it has back and forth. It was a dialogue. It was a soliloquy of, yeah. of her just one. Hmm. And I realized, all right, it's now or never. And, and I kind of took a little bit of a chicken shit roundabout. And I said, you know, I'm really tired. I'm really stressed. I just don't really have the bandwidth bandwidth to listen right now. Well, what the truth would have been is I am fucking bored because I've heard this story so many fucking times and it bores me to tears. <laughs> that would have been the truth. But I, I, I took a little bit of a more indirect. And, and she just said, okay, that's it. 
Okay. Thought, huh? The roof didn't come off. You know, the, you know, <laughs> hellfire awesome. and brimstone didn't come down. And then, and then, like an hour or so later, she came back and she said, um, "By the way, thank you for telling me you you weren't available to listen because I'd rather know that." then you mm. like pretend like you're listening, which doesn't feel good to me because I can feel when you're doing it. And she said, I went and called a friend and got it out and yes. I'm good. I thought, Jesus. what the fuck? Yeah. You know, yeah. I, why didn't I know this a long time ago? That <laughs> awesome. It's actually more loving to even just say, I'm, yeah. I'm bored. I mean, and so I actually started, you know, when I was working with clients, I tell my clients, if I get bored, I tell my clients, if my mind starts wandering and, and if I notice it, I'll come back and say, I got to tell you something. I'm a professional listener and my mind was just wandering while you mm. were talking and I'm bored right now. And I, and I said, I'd, I'll tell them if a professional listener just lost concentration on how many other people do you do that to? Mm. And how does your way of interacting with people anesthetize them, put them to sleep, drive mm. them away. And, and maybe we could take a look at that. And I've never had a client get upset at me. Say, how dare you tell me you were bored. They usually go, yeah, I think we need to talk about that. So mm -hmm. the actual being honest with people about shit is 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 loving. And yeah. more often than not, even if people don't take it well immediately, I've had plenty of clients come back after a group meeting or individual session and say, Robert, I was really pissed at you last week. I wasn't going to come back. The more I thought about it, the more I think you might have a good point, And uh, I'd like to talk about it further. So hmm. um, that's what you two have with each other, man, that, that's just beautiful. Yeah. That you can, you can give each other that straight stuff. Definitely. That's rare. It's rare. We, and we've been playing around with little, um, little, little hacks and, and like tricks, you know, like one, one thing we do, we do this check-in in the morning uh, generally where we just, each one of us gets the floor. The other one generally doesn't cut them off and we can talk through how we're doing physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, and that can go for 15 minutes and go for three or four minutes. Um, and one thing that we were playing around with was, okay, that was your check-in quick question. What's one thing that you're avoiding telling me because it might sound like too dirty or like, like it's a dirty part of yourself or a shadow part of yourself or some part of yourself you're embarrassed about. Like what's one thing that's on your mind that you're just like, if you could scream, you know, this is what it would be about, you know, something like that. We didn't put a lot of words around what that was, but having a little moment where we go, cool, thanks for that. Now, what else? You know, give me one more. <laughs> and there's, it's almost always like now we're getting a little bit more into what's going on with you here. How much bandwidth of what I'm saying right now is being taken up by the thing I'm really, you know, another thing, something else I'm maybe a little more. Uh, viscerally experiencing life yeah. right now that I just don't want to fucking talk about maybe because it's peripheral to my attention period like I don't even really know I am but just having a little space and an invitation to go there and Ron especially man that guy he takes that up and that mantle up and I don't know it's just been a really nice tool I don't know if you remember us doing that a lot Ron. I do and it was a it was a relief because I come from a culture where uh perfection was required um and and, uh, you know, to Robert's jargon, uh, there was a covert contract, right? The, the, my, my culture, Christian culture, and all that said we had to Isn't be perfect. A, is, 
that a convert co- contract? Covert, covert. Now, now, now it's a convert contract. Convert. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just make that joke because didn't you say that you had someone read one of your books? Well, he, he, he called them. He called them. <laughs> Covered contract. Covered, covered contract. contract. Yeah, instead, of, instead of covert. Now it's a covenant, yeah. covenant contract or covenant. Yeah. yeah. Can we can, run, we can writing, run with this. Writing a book and then someone else reads it and your phrases that you've like put your heart and soul to, yeah. they just, just scream. Well, I got to bring it, something up. I got to scream about this guy. You're, you're really, but you almost really have to laugh about it because, <laughs> you know, the, the, the term covert contract, as far as I know, is a phrase that I originated. Because I remember it coming mm-hmm. to me when I was in a men's group. Yeah. And, and, and probably my therapist gave me some feedback. And I said, you're right. It's a, it's a covert contract. And it's kind of like, you know, that kind of shit just comes out. Of, somebody else. I, I, let me go take care of a little business. I'm in yeah, Mexico. Yeah, you're fine. You're totally people, okay. People, it's, it's our mechanic. I'll be right back. That's okay. Cool. Yeah. Take I'm going to put me on mute. I cut you off there, Ron. Anyways, what, what, I'm sorry. I, I was hoping we could get get good at the little like the uh, the art, the podcasting conversational art of stopping, ducking off here, and then returning. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was. You know, as you were telling that story, I was thinking about a time when I joined a men's group, and there was a, it was a big men's group. It was probably 20 dudes. And there was this kind of time where we were trying to share, do a check-in. We were trying to share what was really going on. And I did not feel safe at all to tell them what I was really dealing with. And, Mm. and it wasn't, you know, looking back on it now, it wasn't that shameful. It wasn't shameful at all in my mind. I mean, now, now I can say that now, but then the shame was so great. And, and, and thankfully because of everything I've gone through and, and, diagnosis. What I was dealing with back then was ADHD. I didn't know it. I didn't know what it was called. I thought I was just lazy. I thought I was like spiritually oppressed lazy. I thought I had the demon of laziness on me of some kind. And, and I had no way to begin to articulate that to that group of dudes. And so it just, it just felt like a hot, heavy weight on my body that had no escape. And and so to just be in a, in a, anywhere where I can talk about what's really going on and to not have to have like perfect articulation around it and to have yeah. permission to say it kind of in a messy way versus trying to say it in a yeah. really articulate way is, is super helpful. Absolutely. That's good. I was just uh, speaking with um, a close friend of mine who I've been spending a lot of time with and we're kind of just getting to know each other in a way. And um, she was saying uh, we were having a conversation. It was a needed conversation. It was important, very important to me. I requested it. I requested the time. She made the time and we navigated the conversation really well. And it was a long conversation and it checked all the boxes for me and it was very loving and bright. It couldn't have gone better. And at the end I go like, how was that for you? Like, are there any places where this is challenging for you? You know, you and I haven't had a lot of like, you know, long, you know, more serious conversations and she goes, you know, she said, basically, you know, the one part that was a little challenging is I, you'll ask me questions, which I, I haven't had anybody like you, you know, ask questions of me and want to know more about how I really feel. But, and she goes, that is amazing. I, I need that. It's, it, I, thank you. And she goes, but sometimes I don't know how I feel about something. I don't know mm-hmm. the answer. And so if you're, you know, it's hard, but she wants to, she wants to give me an answer. And so that answer is really like a rough draft, you know? Yeah. First pass. 
Right. But if I'm attaching to the rough draft and then like picking it apart, or I'm going to take that and work with it. once we say goodbye, that's no good. And so we, we're, we're developing this ability to recognize when we're rough drafting something and just like mm-hmm. sketching it out. And, and there's a general uh, feel and uh, agreement that when we are communicating you know, if there's any confusion about anything, like come back and ask, because maybe that was just another draft of how we feel and what we, what I think. And it was like, it was kind of remind me of what you just said. It's just like recognizing that we don't always have to be perfect in our articulation, that we are in process and that that process can be messy in a lot of different ways and allow that and have that allowed by the people we're close to. It's a fucking game changer. I'm going to start pulling the I'm bored card that in conversations though. <laughs> just gonna go put my finger up Please i'm really do. sorry my brain and, stopped yeah, working man. got really and, bored and, 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 but tell them because you love them that you're doing that because i love you so much i have to tell you i'm bored yeah <laughs> oh, so my, my apologies for the interruption i just dropped back in no, you're fine picked up where you guys oh, you're were glad at. you're back yeah yeah no we kept running with it um to, to, Tell me more about this this part of catching yourself and being the observer of your brain when it's when it starts to get off the rails. Because I I I am I don't know. I mean, there's there's the word empath. There's there's people who say ADHD has um, we feel uh, we have emotional dysregulation. You know those kinds of things. And and I uh, identify with all those things in my life. And so when I'm feeling those those sensations in my body, I feel anxiety quite strong in my chest. I feel fear quite strong in my chest. How do you, whether it's you're checking out or it's something's causing you to swing other way, I can, where do you begin to, what do you physically do to start to check in with yourself? Well, that's a good question. Let me kind of come at it from a few ways. One, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to backtrack a little bit and then hopefully I'll remember to come back to this question. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you, you started by talking about codependency. Yeah. And, um, and to me, that was interesting because when I wrote No More Mr. Nice Guy, and you're, you're right, the, the, there were no books at that time and, and hardly any material at all. You know, the internet was just beginning to kind of blossom um, about men that were codependent. And the, the term actually began in, in the addiction recovery mm-hmm. field. People who were in relationship with somebody that had an addiction who were acting out and their addiction became the, the, you know, to be addicted to their addictive partner. That's what codependency was. And for whatever reason that maybe because at that time, maybe women were taught to sacrifice yourself, be there for your man, be there for your kids, all that kind of stuff is that I think most of the books that went from being written about addicts, people in relationship with addicts were written for women. And, um, and so I actually intentionally did not use the word codependency in No More Mr. Nice Guy, yeah. which, of course, that is what nice guy syndrome is. It really is codependency. Yeah. Um, and, and a definition of codependency that I came across at some point, I don't remember where I got this from, um, is borrowed function. Huh. And, hmm. and, the, and I like that term. And it's one you can probably take a lot of different directions. But basically what it means is I don't exist. I don't have an identity. I don't have value. I don't have a purpose. I, I, we probably list them and only in context of another person. Mm. So their happiness is, is on me. You know, their mood is on me. You know, their success is on me. Yeah. Their, you know, their, their unhappiness, is, you know, it's all about, it's borrowed, right? In fact, I think I might've gotten that term from David Snarch, huh. but I could be wrong. Passionate, marriage, book, passionate yeah. marriage, great book, great yeah. book. 
Um, and, and so to bring that back to, to watching the self, I know that I'm a borrowed functioner. I, I, mm -hmm. I know what my patterns are. Like I said, when I, when I was rereading No More Mr. Nice Guy, I'd forgotten what some of my patterns were because I was back. I could see myself back in them. That's one thing about getting into new relationships. Your old patterns show up in new ways. And, mm -hmm. and, and sometimes you don't always notice them real quickly. Mm -hmm. So guys, when, they, when they'll come to work, and I mainly, I mainly work with men now. For about 20 years, my, my work's been with men. And, and I love men for many reasons. I love working with men for many reasons. But one of them is uh, our, the guy way of doing things. Robert, you know, I read your book. I'm gonna, I want to take one of your classes. Or I want to work with you. I want to do a workshop. Um, can you give me an idea about how long this is going to take? As such a guide, you know, it's kind of like, give me the schematic. Give, give me the guidebook, even though most men will not read instructions to save their life. Um, we'll just dive in, try to figure it out on our own. And then, and then, then but tell me how long it's going to take to do it. And I go, I don't know. I said, I've been doing this almost 30 years and, you know, it still shows up in my life. I said, but I noticed it a lot quicker. I have tools for working with it and I get through it a lot quicker. Mm -hmm. Because what I was saying earlier about the stuff that gets implanted in our emotional operating system, down in the very primitive part of our brain as little children, I don't know if that ever completely goes away. Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe a combination of therapy, uh, you know, yeah. ayahuasca, LSD, psilocybin, you know, uh, meditation. Maybe there's some combination of stuff that that can rewrite, overwrite our original emotional uh, programming. But I think actually the best bet is just become a good observer of it. Hmm. Just be a noticer of it. And especially if we can do it without judgment. Because uh, the, the, the two cornerstones of nice guy syndrome are shame. I'm not good enough. I'm bad. Yeah. I'm defective. And anxiety. Those are the two things that pretty much drive everything nice girls and nice girls do. Uh, I got to get approval. I got to hide anything that, that people won't approve of. I've got to be good. I got to blah, blah, blah. And so if you know, and this is where good friends and good coaches and good therapy and good groups come in. If, if you can be with people who love you enough to tell you, hey, I'm bored right now, you can start, if you don't have a shame attack about it, you go, hmm, what, what about how I was just interacting created, you know, this anesthesia for the person I'm talking to? And maybe it's because I'm not in touch with my feelings. Maybe I really want to say something I'm not saying. Maybe, you know, maybe I'm bored. Maybe, you know, who knows? But we've got to be able to notice. So I, I know what a lot of my patterns are. So, for example, you know, Ron, you attended a workshop with me. And I'm doing a virtual version of that right now. And, and one of the things I'll do is I'll have in the virtual workshop, we have five weeks together over time. So I, I can give work at home assignments. And so one assignment I've given these guys is add or subtract one thing from your life for the next 35 days. And it could, you know, just, it may be just, well, I'm going to exercise more or I'm going to drink, I'm not going to drink sodas. Or it could be anything. I, I usually do these right along with the guys I work with. So mm -hmm. I, I, mine for right now, I'm in the middle of my 35 day challenge of not asking my wife what's wrong. Mm -hmm. Or any, any version of that in, Sp in Spanish. Que tienes? Que tienes en tu mente? You, or as my wife taught me years ago, what now? Um, and so I, I made it from the day I made that commitment uh, a little over a week ago of not asking my wife what's wrong, because that's just an anxiety response in me.
she has her anxiety response about right. something it shows up like i said in her breathing her body language her face triggers my anxiety response i gotta fix it make it better get it back to good and like i said my, my fear is not the woman in my life is going to leave me. My fear is she's going to stick around forever and make me fucking miserable. And this is never <laughs> going to get better. I got to fix it now. That That's my stuff, right? So yeah. I know that about me. So doing something like just saying, all right, for 35 days, I'm going to notice the impulse to say, what's wrong? Every yeah. time I have an anxiety reaction, now, instead of saying what's wrong, I'll just, you know, the, even though I you almost have to tape my mouth shut to not say it, it's such a habitual behavior, is instead I'll go, I'm just feeling anxious. Mm -hmm. That's all that's wrong. I'm just feeling anxious. So I have to soothe myself and, and my ways of doing that. I'll usually go get busy with something or maybe just sit or write in my journal or, or, or just whatever. I've learned different tools to help me just experience the anxiety of it soothe it not manage it by trying to change people or situations outside of me and what's funny is that over the last week almost every day i've had that impulse to say what's wrong mm -hmm. and i haven't and within a very short amount of time my wife comes to me and said uh can i talk to you about something i got this thing in my head i just need to get it out and i go sure and she gets out that thing in her head that's making her anxious and i'll just say i love you you know i'm glad you're my wife uh and give her a good hug and a kiss and we connect and we're good. So by knowing how my anxiety triggers and the behaviors it triggers, my anxiety hasn't gone away. I haven't fixed the anxiety. Yeah. Maybe it will always have triggers. You know, like I said, just a downturn in her mouth can create this death-like anxiety in me. And so I, you just practice doing some things different. And again, having people that know you well enough, like having this group of guys, I check in every day on signal with them. Another day, I did not ask my wife what's wrong, and I will do the same tomorrow. Man. And they're all checking in on their stuff. So that, that's how you make these changes. I, I, don't, I don't know that we'll ever change a lot of the fundamental stuff at the core of our being, but yeah. we can, it can be, we can be good watchers of it, and it can actually yeah. be pretty entertaining. You know, I'm so glad you brought this up. Uh, I'm going to run with this, Daniel, because Daniel and I were just talking about this. I mean, this morning, actually, <clears throat> and it's a theme that has been coming up for me, is my whole life I've been looking for the the final solution, as it's been said, to to deal with the anxiety or deal with the depression in my life. The one thing that I thought would smash yeah. it to smithereens, you know, when I was uh, in the evangelical world, I thought it would be prayer and God would somehow deliver me from this thing. When uh, I left that world, I thought it was going to, well, maybe it's a psychedelic experience or maybe it's dealing with this, something in my relationship, you know, you know, or the there's another help book out there or another yeah. seminar I haven't attended yet. Exactly. Yeah. Another method. And, and it's really maybe only in the last seven days, not much more than that. If it is that I thought this probably isn't ever going away yeah. and I have to be completely okay with this. Yeah, <clears throat> witnessing you go through that recently, sorry, Robert, just real, real quick, um, has been one of the most authentic moments, I feel like for you, for I'm sorry, me witnessing in you, Ron, like, hmm. I feel like you are leveling with yourself, you know, in a in a way that you, and this isn't just started seven, seven days ago, this has been an increasing progression of more and more of yourself, you yourself doing this, and then having watershed moments on, on the way. And I, 
and every time I talk to like be focused on Ron, Ron and I are doing our own paths and having successes and failures, you know, all the time together and, and uh, parallel to each other. And um, it's brought a lot of like, I guess I can't say joy, but comfort and trust that and as you level with yourself more and more and um, that I feel like, okay, Ron's settling on bedrock and it's bedrock that you can move from. It's bedrock you can build from, you know, and if you're moving on sand or, or you know, sloughing uh, dirt or things that seem hard and they, they fall, you know, it's like, you just can't build. There's something about us that doesn't trust these, you know, this psychological, you know, base. And it seems like you and I, I think we're both arriving to that. And I don't, I think that the reason that we are having success a little bit later in life or later than we wanted to is because we have made the choice to go on that adventure and that process of, of finding bedrock so we can build for longer term success. So listening to you, Daniel, um, like I said, my, my bread and butter has been relationships for my entire career. And what you're talking about probably could give a lot of different terms to it, but it's a sense of, like I don't know, safety. It's a sense of safety with Ron, and 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 it's funny, you know. Like I said, he's been working on this thing for years, and he just got a deeper level of aha, getting down to that that core yeah, bedrock. Yeah. Now I've been working on my stuff for 25, 30 years, and it just dawned on me seven days ago. You know, maybe it was the moon that lined him and I. Up. <laughs> After 25 years, I'm just going to quit asking what's wrong. I'm just going to I'm going to soothe my own anxiety, and I'm going to let my wife find her her own way through whatever's bothering her. I'm not going to withdraw. I'm just not going to try to fix. And and just like him, Ron accepting, you know what? I think maybe this is just something that's always going to be a companion. It's always going to be here. I, I don't have to override it. Don't have to find a magic fit for it. I don't have to judge it. And and he he got real. And 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 that that felt safe. To you, Daniel. Okay. And I know my wife has experienced the same thing. Mm. When I'm in an anxiety state and say, what's wrong? It look, yeah, it might look kind of loving, like, you know, what, what what's in your mind? You want to talk? Let's get it out. You know, it may, but I'm just fucking managing my anxiety. Mm. That doesn't come across as loving. People don't experience that huh. as loving. They experience it yeah. as manipulative. And so when by me not asking my wife what's wrong or Ron accepting you know, I, I may always have this deep inner, uh, that I, I, I'll never get rid of. It may just be part of me and what I carry through life. Yeah. When we just settle down to that, now people feel safe. Now people can get close to us. Now people can feel something real because I, I think my wife can experience the realness of my anxiety. She doesn't experience anything real when I'm saying what's wrong. And, and so yeah, just just getting down to, to yeah. the what is yeah. makes people feel safe and loved. Yeah, yeah, it's authentic. I think it's when we when we we can't fake the funk, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> if you write a book, make sure they say that correctly. Because if they don't, well, m- m- maybe actually have them say it incorrectly. Sell more books. <laughs> I mean, the the when we're trying to be authentic, but we're holding back it's coming out somehow the inauthenticity totally. is there totally. and 
and especially if, if we are managing something, you know, yeah, managing people, managing time. situations, managing anxiety, yeah. managing shame, you know, people feel that, that, you know, and, and, and for example, just segue just slightly here. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, when I started working with guys around dating, I, you know, I, I had to learn to date in my late forties when I got divorced second time. And I didn't know how to date. I depended on nice guy seduction. Just, you know, how, how do, how do, how do I impress a woman enough that she'll want to go out with me and, and hide my sexual agenda enough that she'll want to take her clothes off at some point, hmm. Uh real, real logical way of approaching things. Um, but what, you know, when I work with guys about being authentic, you know, if you, if you want to be attractive to women, the women are attracted to authenticity. And I say, you got to be you. And guys will tell me all that. Well, apparently women aren't attracted to the, the me that's me. You know, they're just not interested. They don't call back. They don't go out. They don't hit on me. They don't blah, blah, blah. And I go, how many women have you ever let see the real you? When's the last time you looked at the real you? And, and most of us don't. Most of us have been carrying these masks, these facades, these mechanisms, usually early childhood, but they get solidified in adolescence when we try to figure out how do I fit into the world? How do I get yeah. love? How do I succeed? How do I have meaning? How do I have a, a self? This stuff gets solidified. And, and, and so we're just doing these patterns unconsciously, you know, trying to get love and approval and get our needs met and, and don't realize nobody, including ourselves, ever sees the real us. Yeah. Yeah. And, and something about getting real invites people in. It lets them get close. I think yeah. that speaks a little bit about what Daniel and I were talking about earlier. Is if, even when we're trying to describe what we're going through, trying to have perfect articulation from it keeps us from being able to say the, the most authentic what thing. Mm -hmm. and, I th and I know for me, in my own life, knowing who I really am has been a long journey. And it's it, I, my guess is it's going to continue always because my guess. I spent my whole life thinking I have to look like this, say these kinds of things and appear in a certain way in order to be liked by people around me. And and then when I started asking myself the question, then, well, what do I want? What do I want? You know, the most terrifying thing comes to my mind, which is nothing. There's no thing <laughs> coming to my mind. And it's taken me a lot of effort to allow myself to uh, not be perfect in articulating what I want and allow myself to say it, say one thing one day, and maybe it's a rough draft, like Daniel was saying earlier. And, uh, and I can play around with that and I can try it on for a while. Does that feel more authentic to me? Mm, yeah. A little bit more, you know? Uh, oh, took a, took a right with that one. And that one didn't feel as good as I thought it was going to feel. So what do I do now? And, and for me, who feels the feelings high and low, really strong, <clears throat> and I was just telling Daniel this earlier, is, is a, then I have a difficulty trusting my feelings, right? Yeah. Trusting the, those, big, those big swings. Because sometimes I can get such a, in a high swing, everything is amazing, and holy shit, no, nothing can stop me, that I take off, uh, bite off more than I can chew. How about this? I'll, I'll throw this out. Yeah. How about accepting that feelings are not trustworthy? Mm. Yeah. They're information. Yeah. Yeah. But I, and they're information that, that are meant to just kind of get our attention. But what if we don't look for them to be trustworthy? Yeah. What if we don't look for our feelings to be the thing that, you know, help, that, that help us decide, should I take this job or not? Yeah. Or should yeah. I break up with this woman or not? 
because our feelings are going to fluctuate. You know, again, as a therapist, I've, I've often said, coming from a therapist, I've always said that I think feelings are overrated. And I think talking about yeah. feelings is even more highly overrated. Yeah. <laughs> feelings are good yeah. information. They're really good information. But to look for them as the answer to, I, I, yeah. I was feeling depressed last week. And I, I don't tend to move in that direction much, but mm. so it got my attention. I was having some feelings. So I, I journaled about it. I thought, I'm just going to be with this. I'm going to see what information comes out of this. Mm. And um, within really even just 24 hours, I'm writing in my journal the next day. Mm. I was very much out of that space, probably for no other reason than I just accepted it and just sat with it yeah. and just thought, well, there, there's something here to pay attention to, but there's not necessarily a truth or a fact yeah. in that feeling it's just something like, to, to to honor it's like that world of trust your intuition trust your feeling trust what lights you up all of that like well, what we're talking about um i feel like i started having an experience in the last couple of years where i was trusting i would have an intuition right and so you're like an intuition that's a feeling it was a feeling right and i was like no it's not a feeling it was it was mental processes that had recognized mistakes in the past and were like sub maybe sub slightly subconsciously putting pieces together they equaled a feeling that i shouldn't do something but that feeling was also mixed up and supported by this web of experience and um uh intellectual recognitions and like uh it was really informative to me and now you think like well you apply that to like a really big feeling and not an intuition and I think that when we do talk about feelings, and I haven't read a lot about this, and I am just kind of hacking out, you know, first pass on putting words to this. Early draft. It is. It is. I, I love that concept. Thank you guys yeah. for sharing that. I, I kind of walked in on the end of it when I, you know, went out and gave the keys to the mechanic. But I thought that, that's, a, that's, a great, that's a great way of approaching, especially, you know, getting to know ourselves and getting to know another person. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, but there really is a lot more um, intelligent, intellect, mental, uh, maybe even physical input that equals a feeling, you know, and, 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 and maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe it's that those things get separated out. But I guess what I'm saying is that, like, I heard this friend of mine last night, we had dinner uh, at her house, and she was telling this story about how she had gotten that this great uh, offer to buy a place and have, start a whole new career in New Orleans. And on paper, it was everything she wanted. It was like money, or it seemed to be everything that, that she might want, money, um, time, blah, 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 location. And she was just like, she just said, I had, I had the feeling that, that it was just wrong. But then when she started telling me why she felt that way, that feeling was coming from thoughts and beliefs and values, you know, supported by other things that were just a feeling. So I think that um, getting in touch with and communicating with and having clear ideas of what our values are, our, um, our beliefs, and some of the ideas that we've had about something can help us untether and unwind and kind of like spread out these feelings that we may or may not want to trust. Does that, do you follow that, Ron? What do you think about that? <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I got lost a couple of times in there. Oh, but, you serious? <laughs> but, Me too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Seems so clear. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think the, if you both were lost, then let me, let me just try to wrap it up then one more time. Is I think that I agree feelings can be untrustworthy, 
And I think that they are more tied to um, our past and our history and ideas and successes and failures that we've had than maybe we think. They're not just emotions are totally separate from all of our experience. They're connected and they, how do we tear them apart? They're far too complex to just say, they're going to give me yes and no answers to Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 The um, thought that was coming up for me and that is when we have these strong feelings and especially when it's attached to a past for, I'll say, I'll speak for myself, especially when I know that there's a consequence of pain in my life. I immediately think that if it, well, my feeling is this, it's a negative feeling, the action I need to put it around, it's going to feel pain. And my wife's been challenging me. She goes, what if it's just going to be easier than you expect? And it doesn't have to be hard. And, and I've, been trying to live with that mantra in my life. And I probably need to put that like a, at the title part of every page I write or, or whatever project I'm working at, let it be easy because I come in with a, with maybe like your friend who's moving to New Orleans with this idea that like, God, this is going to be fucking hard. And I have to like be prepared and, I, and my body starts to get tense and I begin to kind of like build up the uh, energy to try to push through it or it starts to feel super heavy in my life. And, and, and those are based on my feelings. And I, I think that's dead on, man. I'm getting a lot of gems here already. I, and I, you know, I was feeling depressed last week. As I sat with that, I think that's really, when you say you're making things hard, I think that's what was making me depressed. Huh. Um, is it too many things in my life I was making way too hard? Hmm. And, and it's funny that um, almost the, the aha awareness came in. I, like I wrote it in my journal that morning, kind of just sat with it. Didn't try to make it go away. Didn't try to do anything with it. Just thought, okay, I noticed. I'm, I'm, I'm down. Um, nothing big, nothing huge. I'm just kind of down, low energy. And I think I woke up, maybe, maybe it was early morning, an hour before my alarm, I think. And I remember just lying in my bed. And, um, you know, the sheets feel good. The air conditioner's on. You know, my wife's just, you know, laying on her side. And, and I'm just stretched out on the bed. And I thought, this feels good. This feels good. Just to feel the sheets, the coolness of the air conditioner, my skin against the sheets, uh, just move different ways and feel different sensations in my body. And I thought, you know, I think what that feeling, the depression was trying to say is just be in this moment and just experience this, not, not all this out there that my brain was, and something about just, yeah, I'm not the only one that has to get up on the leap camera. Um, and and just, just by just feeling my body physically and being in that moment, nothing else existed, but that moment felt like it kind of broke whatever dam was there. And I was reminded, of, I, I, I love Thich Nhat Hanh, a Buddhist monk, passed away about four or five months ago. Um, he says the only way we can really suffer is to get in the time machine, either going into the past, going into the future, you know, rehashing past mistakes, fuck ups, missed opportunities, going in the future, like you say, making it too hard. Um, and he said, if we don't, if we want to stop suffering, just get out of the time machine, just be in the moment. So when I was just in my bed, feeling my sheets, feeling the air conditioning, nothing to be solved, nothing to be figured out, just in the moment with it is like this is where i need to be there's nothing more required of me right now than this so robert let me ask you a question around this and and ron i'm always curious what you have 
to say about this topic too. How do you uh, reconcile a lot of what we're talking about with the subconscious and if this idea that we have a lot of programs and um, aspects of ourselves that are guiding the ship that we don't have or might have varying degrees of access to, how do we address that and start to change that and get that on board? <laughs> I, I, I'm going to answer this in a in an indirect way, but but come back and best I can answer your question. I don't know if this is a, a feature of getting older. I, I'm 66 now, um, or I, I don't know, but but it seems that I notice it more as I've gotten older. I ponder a lot of stuff. You know, I've, I've written three books. I've created classes. I I, I teach. I do workshops. So I, you know, I, I I I think about shit. I analyze shit. I, I I put things together and things in ways that people can understand. I present it to people, and so I'm I'm always kind of doing in internal you know, Sherlock Holmesing, trying to, you know, hmm. understand and figure stuff out. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, the answers I tend these days that I come to, there's two answers that tend to come up a lot. And is my initial answer to your question about the subconscious and its impact is um, the two answers are, I don't know. And I don't <laughs> think it really matters. Um, and every time I think it doesn't really matter. I think of, you know, um, uh, Freddie Mercury, you know, nothing really matters. I, I was driving my mother's, my mother, my mother had this Volvo that she bought 20 something years ago after a severe accident. And um, it was getting old and she actually just traded it in not too long ago, uh, just a few months ago. And, I, and I, it dawned on me. I asked her just the other day when I was visiting in Seattle, I said, mom, do you still have that little piece of paper? Did you get it out of your old car and put it in your new one? And she knew what I was talking about. Cause I remember I was driving her car a year or two ago and I'm driving down the freeway. And I just noticed a piece of paper. She taped up right inside the windshield, right where, you know, uh, right to the kind of, you looked at the left of the steering wheel. And, um, and it just said, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Can you imagine driving down the freeway and all the stuff that matters so much? You just yeah. get reminded it doesn't matter. Yeah. So, you know, whether it's subconscious, God, war in Ukraine, you know, COVID, social justice warrior, I, what, whatever seems to always matter so much, I'm not sure it often really does. And I don't know that I have the answers to it. Um, and, and, you know, there's a certain comfort in both of those answers. I don't know. And yeah. I don't know how much it matters. So, so you, does does the subconscious mind exist and work? Yeah, I I, I do believe that. Um, I, I know some people argue that we're actually controlled by fate, that we never actually really make a decision. I don't know that I believe uh, that's for me too much of a stretch. But some people really like that model; uh, they hang on to it dearly. Um, but yeah, I think the subconscious works a lot because I think most of what we internalized at a really early age of life got internalized in our subconscious, got internalized at, at an emotional level that not in words, not in picture memory, that shit doesn't come along till a few years later, but in emotional memory. And I think that stuff is pretty powerful. And, and you know, Ron, you know, talked about ev evangelical Christian. I, I grew up in conservative Christian church. I have two degrees in religion. And um, from an intellectual point of view, I, 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 I was a minister for eight years. I, 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 I quit identifying as a Christian 20, 30, probably 30 years ago and, um, and don't identify as a religious person. 
And every now and then I still get this emotional twinge of what if I am going to burn in hell for all eternity. And, and then I liken that to child abuse. Cause I think that is child abuse to tell a child they're going to burn in hell for all eternity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's still there. It's still there. There's, and so like my wife getting a downturn look on her face, her, her, her mouth going down a little bit, triggering a life and death anxiety in me. Yeah. Subconscious. And, and, you know, I think the more we can make our subconscious conscious, and I think that maybe helps chip away at it and relieve it. But some of it, as I said earlier, maybe we'll just spend the rest of our life being a good observer. Of it. So it sounds like what you're saying is that the way you deal with the subconscious is you notice the ways that you behave and automatically that's probably something and then you, you interface with those and you change those habits. Yeah. Well, and the way I've been telling clients this for a long time is anytime your present moment reaction to anything seems out of proportion yeah. to the present moment is probably old. It's probably old stuff being projected onto the press. When, you know, when my wife, you know, forgets to, you know, when she leaves and forgets to say, I love you, or doesn't come give me a kiss. And when I feel really hurt by that and really like, why the fuck am I even married? Okay. That's an old reaction. Yeah. Now, that's, that's out of proportion to my wife, just having too much in her mind to remember to give me a kiss before she, <laughs> she walks out the door. Yeah. Just, I, and so I, I've, I've learned to become, Oh, they got the dog, the kids coming in. Now. <laughs> my my dog's back there chewing on the bone. Now, here she is over here. Um, yeah, uh, life's good. Life's I, uh, good. I, to answer life's your good. question <laughs> earlier, Daniel, not, nothing about, really matters. Yeah, about that. How do I deal with the unconscious? Is is I got to give name. Well, you know, when it comes up and things are automatically happening, the emotions are running. My my motor's going. I'm going into anxiety. I'm going into people pleasing. I've, uh, I've had a lot of fun naming those parts mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. calling, uh, one of them, like the old security guard who needs to go into retirement, uh, <laughs> an, another part of him, you know, Stanley, he's got a brushy mustache and, and he's got the flashlight that like he po pokes in every dark corner. And, and I've even, there's a place out in hood river that I've even given him a retirement home out of like, like you can go live out there. You don't have to work so hard anymore. No, I but like everyone... my job. I'll do this for free. Ron. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll keep poking this light in every dark corner. <laughs> yeah. And another one is, uh, is I just call it the gerbil and the gerbil will get wound up and he wants to jump on the, on the, uh, wheel and just go for it. And I have to imagine my hand going into the little box and picking up by the scruff of his neck. And he's just, you know, reeling away wants to go. I'm like, Hey, man, today you don't have to work so hard and we can put you over into a nice little playpen where you don't have to get on the, on the uh, wheel. And that's kind of how I deal with it. And maybe that's my own way of going. It doesn't matter. This is not helpful. It's not a value to me. It's not adding anything to my life. It's not being of any assistance. It's just taking up bandwidth that I don't need. That I need to use for something else. It's hard enough to listen to you guys when, when uh, on my own, but then when those other things are going on, it's even harder, right? And so that's how it is as a dad, as a friend, as a parent, as, as a, so that, right, as a husband. And so noticing those things in me and giving them cute names and kind of having a, a little story in my mind is a way that I kind of deal with it. What about you, Daniel? Well, thanks for asking. I think the ways that I've started to deal with it is First of all, to try to be, to notice things and be, make consistent changes. Like I think, I think Robert, when you said 
you're going to take 35 days to not say this thing for your mom or sorry to your uh to your wife as, as a good Freudian, Very Freudian. yeah, yeah. I like that. <laughs> I, actually you know uh, iron john i'm listening to iron john right now and he was talking about how uh, freudian slips are actually hermetic like it's hermes it's a uh the god of uh of uh mercury that like really quick um, or Mercury is Hermes. Long story short, he was like, they're not Freudian slips. It's that part of your brain that's so quick. It just like is faster than you are. This must be subconscious at work you know? right there. He said my mom when he meant to, yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's usually pretty right on. Um, but uh, I think, uh, Robert, that what I do to do to make changes that I know are in my life that are being affected or are symptoms of subconscious, like wiring is to do what you just did you know you just impose a structure that you haven't had before and you stick to it because that's going to allow that thing to come up and get triggered but not in just one minute one moment or several moments but for 35 days it's going to come up and you know it's a little bit longer time and it's a little bit more often corrective experiences and just slowly over time things get better um so i think that structure that is that you have that we have arrived to by a lot of consideration and observation and thought and care and maybe some input from other people and then sticking to that structure is is the first thing that comes to my mind about how we can get to some of these things and, and change our lives really like deeply yeah. and i and i like that and i like involving other people with it because you know a lot of times people say robert what's the first thing you recommend for nice guys and i'll go uh, go get help. Don't, don't do this alone. You mm. didn't become a nice guy in social, social isolation. Don't try to recover from it yeah. by yourself and getting people that can give you more accurate information about yourself that than your own internal beliefs and hold you accountable. They can see things in you. You can't see in yourself. That's been so helpful in me getting those pieces. So like, for example, me doing this thing where I'm you know not going to say to my wife for 35 days, you know, what's wrong. I check in every day with this group of men that are in my workshop and they're all doing the same. And um, the, the, as you said, we've created a structure, but we've also involved some other people in that structure because if that structure was easy, we'd probably already be doing it without it being a structure. That's like I said, the idea yeah, of commit, yeah, commitment yeah. is only required for shit that doesn't come easy to you. Cause if it came <laughs> easy, you wouldn't have to make a commitment to it. Yeah. And so uh, just for example, an example of that fasting right now, um, mm. I've been watching this video series on Alzheimer's and, you know, they're given all these, you know, great things to do to help, you know, brain health and body health. And, and, you know, the idea of fasting came up and I do intermittent fasting pretty regularly anyway. And so, um, so yesterday about midday, I thought, well, I haven't eaten since six o'clock last night. I thought, you know, I could do a 24 hour fast and I thought, what the fuck? Let's go 48 hours. So uh, tonight at 6 p.m. will be the end of my 48-hour fast. Hmm. But the, but the, the reason I mention that, not is because in case I'm really incoherent and say stupid stuff, I can blame it on the fast and the, key, <laughs> the, 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 key, the ketones, you know, it, it's their fault. It's the ketones. Um, so, but the point is like when you decide to fast, doesn't matter, 12 hours, 24 hours, 48 hours, you notice stuff that you wouldn't notice if you weren't, if you hadn't, like you said, made that commitment to doing something. So now when I go in the kitchen with a grazing mentality, 
Like usually I've got the big thing of Costco cashews. You know, when I'm hungry, I <laughs> screw the lid, grab a handful of cashews, give a couple to the dog and she shakes my hand for him. And, and, you know, and close it. So I, when I go in there grazing, I go, all of a sudden it hits me. Wait a minute, wake up. I'm not eating. I'm not eating till this time. And I'm just in an unconscious, you know, grazing mentality, you know, and, and, it, and so it's a good way to keep waking up. So I, I, I think it's a really good strategy of yeah. say, all right, I'm going to do more. I'm going to do this or I'm not going to do it. And, and it lets you pay attention when those underlying emotional dynamics that yeah. usually get expressed in very unconscious kind of ways, we can make the unconscious conscious in that yeah. process, especially when we're sharing it with people who know us well enough and care about us and are, you know, they're, they're there to cheer us on and yeah. hold our feet to the fire. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. I have a friend who knew we were speaking with you today and uh, uh, they asked me um, to ask kind of send a question your way. And I thought it was really good. Actually, um, they're pretty new to some of this terminology and are just curious, like if this is just coming at this idea of people pleasing, being nice to keep things safe, if this is just coming onto their radar, um, you know, other than getting help, I get that that's a first step, but they were curious about how do you know when you're doing it wrong? Like, <laughs> how do you even just start noticing? <laughs> I, I love that question. Um, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I've been saying for a while that probably every self-help book, every religious experience, every, anything that requires a change of internal paradigm, you know, a roadmap, an emotional cognitive, physical, behavioral way of doing anything that we've been doing for a long time, ought to come with this big disclaimer. It's going to take you a while to figure this shit out. They all need to say that. It's going to take you a while. Yeah. Now, I think 12-step program probably does this as well as anybody. You know, you walk into a 12-step meeting for the first time, maybe you just, hey, my, my drinking's out of control or my gambling's out of control or my codependency's out of control or my porn addiction's out of, you know, whatever. You walk into this meeting, you're anxious. I, I, I can't even begin to guess how many people have driven up to 12-step meetings throughout the last, you know, 60, 80 years around the world, parked in the parking lot, never got out of their car and drove away again, right? Mm. People are anxious. So you walk in. People immediately come and start talking to you. You know, if it's an AA meeting, they get you a cup of coffee because they always got coffee there. Yeah. Um, they, they, they'll sit by you, start showing, you know, connection with you. Um, say you don't have to, you don't have to talk, just, just listen, you know. And, and then when it's over, they'll say, you want to go get a cup of coffee? You want to, you want to go talk for a little bit? I mean, it's, it's, it's just a, a way of bringing you in. And one of the things that they'll typically say, is they'll say, you know, don't, don't worry about this. Don't worry about the 12 steps. Don't worry. But what they'll say is make a commitment to do 90 meetings in 90 days. So in other words, they, they, they know it's going to take about that long to start reshaping this paradigm. The word, cause you're still going to have the impulses yeah. to drink, to gamble, to look at porn. You're still going to have this stuff, but you're going to be around people who aren't doing it are talking about the not doing of it they'll probably talk to you about getting a sponsor during that time and they, they've got a really good model to help walk you through how do you get from this old way of viewing the world to a completely different paradigm 
and and they've got their steps they got all their slogans easy does it one day at a time attitude of gratitude you know all of this stuff helps you reprogram your brain so what i tell nice guys you're going to have that one of those moments and, and an example most people can relate to is you're going to walk up to like uh, an office a, 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 a big double door on some kind of public building you're going to about to open the door and as right as you open it you notice a woman walking up behind you maybe kind of attractive and you you step back and you hold the door open for her and you let her walk through and then you walk through and then you go oh fuck was well, that me being a people pleaser, looking for approval, hoping she'd think well of me, hoping she'll like me, smile at me, or was I just being a decent human being? And I tell people, probably you won't know. It's going to take you a while to ferret out. Was, was that you doing the same old behavior because it feels normal, or was it a familiar behavior with different reasons? And it just takes a while. Now, one thing I, I tell guys, going back to really a lot of what we've already been talking about, is to just ask yourself as a way of, of kind of ferreting out a little bit, was any of this, because like I said earlier, most everything nice guys do is anxiety-based or shame-based. Was any of this about relieving anxiety, or was any of this about getting approval or avoiding yeah. disapproval? And if you think, no, I, I just felt like the right thing to hold the door open. Great. Let it go. Don't give it a second thought. If you go, yeah, I think if it'd been another guy, I don't know that I would have held the door open because it was a woman. I wanted her approval. All right. Don't judge that. Just notice it. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Man, I, I wish there were 90 day containers for, for this kind of thing. Cause I, I, I got sober from alcohol 90 days doing yeah. the 90 day, you know, 90 meetings in 90 days, huge Kickstarter, yeah. huge Kickstarter. And, and like you said, there's a lot of support, a tremendous amount of support in re rewiring our brain. And that's what this really takes. And I, and it's absolutely one of those things that takes fucking time <laughs> like you Ron, said earlier hey Ron, let me yeah. ask you just off the cuff just for fun yeah if you had to if you could come up with one little exercise you could do for 30 days 90 days whatever that would address kind of what we're talking about in our conversation in your life what would that be and i, I i'll come up with one too yeah i'm gonna say something in the realm something that is close to what robert's doing with not asking how my wife's doing really something like that or yeah. or having some kind of ownership for my own feelings regardless of how she looks and you know in terms of her emotions um and and i had a moment of that over this weekend where we were on a drive and i could tell she was wrestling with something in her mind mm -hmm. and wasn't the place where uh, we had the capacity to talk about it and I had to kind of, and it was a beautiful drive, like Mount Hood in the distance, like the a river on one side of us, just ridiculous. And I had to go, let's check out this view, dude. Let's like really focus in and just be on this drive and enjoy it and enjoy the new car feeling that I still experiencing with my new Volvo and, and just sit in there. And I, and so I think if I could really put a finer point on it, it would be something in that, in that realm of, yeah my feelings are my feelings and I, and dealing with the anxiety or um, shame in my life isn't going to be fixed by checking in with my wife. Yeah. Yeah. Well, How about you? That's awesome. Uh, I, 
I keep thinking about it and uh, I would love to do something around, um, you know, that I could do with all people, you know, instead of with just one situation, yeah. because I, I don't know. I just feel like this, you know, the nice guy for me comes up in, in, um, you know, a bit more of a subtle way because I, I really pride myself on saying how I feel and expressing how I feel and, and creating a, an invitation to other people to say, do the same, you know, like I really like, for example, this is a really good example in this conversation. When you, Ron, told me that you got a little lost in my in my thing, it's like thank you, you know. Yeah. Now now we're talking, you know. And then Robert, you you doubled that up, and I just I just feel like if there's something first thing that came to my mind, I don't even know if this makes sense. It's around eye contact. For hmm. some reason, eye contact it, it, there's something around that in life for me, but I don't know if that's attached to this. But I really I, I'm going to consider that and come up with something. Maybe we can do that for 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 a month, you know, and just yeah. see, see how it goes. Try it on. Are, are you, Daniel, are you aware of any of your strong anxiety responses? Definitely. Definitely. They all come. Would, would, would an anxiety response, for example, be, do you get more talkative when you're anxious? Oh. I do. I, I, I crack jokes when I'm anxious. I get talkative when I'm anxious. I don't know if I get talkative when I'm anxious. It depends on the level of anxiety that we're talking about you know, not talking as much, leaving. Have you ever heard of someone say that transitions are difficult for them? Like pretty much any transition, like leaving the house, um, uh, going from doing showering and getting ready to cooking breakfast to breakfast to this. And I've noticed that I have a hard time letting go of the thing I'm doing because when I leave it, I get, I get nervous and anxious. Like I'm going to fucking lose, lose a lot more than just whatever I'm finishing, you know, <laughs> going to bed, getting up, uh, something around that. That was another thing that came to my mind when, yeah. when Ron was talking is like, if I could just leave with that, move on with the first impulse when I need to do something else, instead of circling mm -hmm. back around to check, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's an anxiety provoking thing huh. that comes up all day, every day. Huh, yeah, huh. but behavioral therapists would have fun with that. They, they they say, you know, get a little timer, you know, do something that mm. just starts a timer to where as soon as it's time to stop doing something and start doing something else, hit the timer. It gives you 30 seconds, 60 seconds, whatever. And you just go. And you just go do it. Now, just out of curiosity, and I know we're kind of wrapping up here, but is what I just said in any way attached to nice guy? Uh, like the book that you wrote and this topic that's kind of been the center of this? Well, I, I don't know. You know, I, I think I'd have to dig in with a little bit more. But as again, I said that the nice guy syndrome often, you know, if it's anxiety based and shame based, that means you want to do things right. And and wanting to do things right in any way is is a pretty dominant part of nice guy syndrome. Got it. Now, that, that can be hiding things about us or just yeah. getting everything right or perfectionism. And I always tell my guys I work with that claim to be perfectionists. I said, I don't think there's any such thing as a perfectionist. There's only yeah. imperfectionists because you're seeing imperfection everywhere. <laughs> um, so, you know, I don't know that I would pigeonhole it like, oh, that's a nice guy behavior because yeah. it, it didn't hit me as that. But it did mm -hmm. strike me. Again, I, I, I would kind of have to sit with it and hear a little bit more about it because I'm actually kind of intrigued by it because it's not necessarily my experience but I think most of the women I've been with in my life are that way. It's like, you know, we're trying to get from like, get ready to get to, you know, get ready to leave the house to go do this transitions. Yeah. And I remember one ex-girlfriend I had, 
was terrible at it. You know, she's putting on her makeup, getting her clothes done. And I think to avoid transition, she'd then like go wash dishes and come back and do a little more makeup and then go put yeah. some laundry on and yeah. come back and do. And I'm thinking, is this all just because you have no internal clock and you have no idea hmm. we have to actually leave yeah. in less time than it takes to put your makeup on and do dishes and do the laundry. Yeah. But it might've been that very thing you're talking about is that there was an anxiety state of doing the transition from, all right, I got to have to be done at some point, putting on makeup and ready to walk out the door and get in the car for the next transition. Can I delay it by doing this? Can I delay it by doing that? Hmm. Can I delay it by, uh, oh, that 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 outfit I thought I was going to wear, I'm not going to wear after all. So I have to start all over again, pick out a different outfit with different accessories, different shoes. I'm not saying that's what you go through. No, okay. But but it, it, it still could be, and, and this, this might actually make you smile. It could actually be a little bit of an OCD kind of thing that if I don't do this right, if I don't go through the right rituals, something bad is going to have happen in the transitionary state. And you might not even know what that bad thing is other than there's just this lurking fear that it, it mm. could. Yeah. You know, uh, it's funny you mentioned OCD regarding perfectionism too. Uh, I kind of connect those things. Um, it's like, are you a perfectionist or are you just attached in a, a little bit obsessive way? And then it just gets called perfectionism so we can make it look like, oh, I'm a perfectionist. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, I'm no. not just, I'm just OCD. I'm <laughs> exactly. perfectionist. Yeah, that's better. <laughs> But I, the last thing I'll say about that, I appreciate the little bit of attention around this because it is a, a thing that we had Gay Hendrix. Uh, we had a nice conversation with Gay Hendrix who wrote The the Big Leap. And yeah, I lo love that book. I'll have to listen to that show. Yeah, and he gets into, um, you know, your upper limiting, your whole, how are we sabotaging ourselves? How are we holding ourselves back? And I was like, man, the, the not moving into the unknown because that's what I think it is for me is every time I can I'm relate done, to that, yeah. You know? But I experienced, it's like you said, and this is one of my favorite things that I've heard is when, when the response that you're having, like you said, is, is bigger than the moment, you're probably dealing with the past. And I think that I, to some extent, every time there's some element of unknown that I need to leap into, whether it's a big unknown, like changing a job, or whether it's literally just getting up in the morning or, um, or finishing one task to leap into the unknown transition that, that before the next one settles in. It's around that for me, I have a strong response. And, and I also have so much experience in this world with diving into the unknown and things working out better than I could imagine. Oh, like yeah. literally almost every time. Hmm. And I think that that's what it is for me, even though it's not a specifically uh, a, a nice guy um, situation. I think that the thing that I need to do for a, a, a longer period of time is around that. The timer setting, the following, the first impulse, set a time when you're done by this thing and you are yeah. done with that time. Yeah. And, and I think it would change my life. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle of creating a video series, a class for, for, for nice guys on, I call it nice guys don't finish last day rotten middle management. And it really is about all the ways we get stuck. And what you're yeah. talking about is a way to get yeah, stuck. Totally. What's, what's interesting, the, the, the script I just finished writing a few days ago that I'll shoot this week, it really involves about going into the unknown. And, and the security of what's known. And, and the, the, what I'm going to share with you, there's maybe a future book in there somewhere. And, and, I, and I know we're, we're getting close to wrapping up because I'm on a schedule. Yeah. But I, I talk about in, in, the, in the homework for, um, of the video I'm about to shoot this week, I talk about outer space movies and that outer space movies, I think, serve 
for a lot of times to help us deal with the with common human existential angst. Hmm. We're we're all afraid of what's out there, right? What, what what's around that next corner? Well, if if we leave the familiar, what's out there? You know, we all have our, our questions. How do we get here? What happens when we die? You know, what what is God? You know, who am I? What what, what am I supposed to be doing? Uh, our fear of aloneness, our fear of death. It just all of these stuff. It just it's human existential angst. And I think space movies help us explore that because we leave our sense of security. And, and it's kind of pointed out our sense of security is just this very small rock hurtling through space. But as long as we're on Earth, we feel secure, right? It's secure. Then we go get in this little tin can. And while we're in the tin can, we have this sense of security. But it's just a tin can hurtling through space. And then we have to go out and do the spacewalk. And then there's, of course, the meteor shower that comes or the alien that comes or Hal doesn't let you back in the, you know, the AirPod or whatever it is that now we're just out there in nothingness. Yeah. And, and I think the space movies help us deal with that. And so as I was listening to you talk, I'm thinking, yeah, that's just, that's just human existential angst. I don't know what's in this next thing I'm going to go do. So, yeah. and because I know I've got a familiarity with what I'm doing right now, I'm exactly. doing it right now. Yeah. So I'll do that just a little bit longer <laughs> to delay getting into the rocket ship, you know, playing major Tom, you know, blasting off into space, you know, and then stepping out of the airlock and then unhooking the tether and then, Oh fuck! I think I'll just stay what I'm doing just a little bit longer. Know that. Yeah. It's so it's, it, that unknown is 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 part of our human existence. And what that does in my life is very clear. Little uh, setup for failure is it makes me tired, have less energy for the next thing, late, you know, hungry. Like it just it nothing like go into things with momentum and time and 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 like uh, one of your arms free like carry able to carry some stuff be able to have a little more time and go in with some extra energy and that is just like man that that is definitely one thing that i'm gonna put some more attention on as per this conversation i really appreciate that and, and you're going to be a lot more aware of it now because you talked about it you put it out yeah. there we gave it some metaphors you're going to yeah. think of outer space and <laughs> sigourney weaver yeah. and aliens or you know what you know whatever um and and, and how you're going to be where you'll smile at it you'll laugh at it i'm doing that thing you know i'm, I'm actually delaying getting around to brushing my teeth because that's the last thing i have to do before i walk out the door because yeah. once i do that the next stage begins and i'm not doing it yet so i don't know what it might entail You'll, you'll laugh at it. You'll smile at it. You'll love being a, 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 a flawed human being because we all do that stuff. Yeah. No kidding, man. What a gift, Robert. Appreciate you joining us today. Yeah. I'm sure we could uh, keep talking Great a lot. Talk. And um, I mean, there's more I want to get into, but thank you so much for being, being here with us. Thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm. We can't wait to uh, hopefully visit again, especially if you got a new book coming around with the uh, nice guys in middle management that hit me. I think that was one of my first courses I ever took. Mm -hmm. with All you. right. Well, yeah, yeah, every class I teach, I have an intention of turning into a book, but, but I think I got to get this, um, this, this space, space movie book out there somewhere. <laughs> um, you know, good. it's just, yeah, yeah. Nice. if you guys want to challenge yourself, go read Eric Fromm's escape from freedom and then read Jamie wheels, recapturing the rapture. And then go read some Osho too, because and, and even Thich on they're all talking about yeah. our human fear of freedom. We are terrified of freedom. Wow. Because, because the fear is it'll involve 
the unknown. It involved that that abandonment and death yeah. of of childhood that we yeah. feel. Wow. Oh, so, thanks for that recommendation. Appreciate that. Thank I'll, you. Re- I'll really get get your mind. Go get, get go get you on Amazon. Order <laughs> some shit. Cool. All right. Appreciate you, Robert. Take care. Have a good uh, rest of your day. Daniel, good to meet you. Ron, Likewise. thanks. Uh, the, good to spend time with you again. Okay, good to see you. Bye-bye. Feel dressing. All right, man. We went deep with that one. That was uh, that was as deep of a dive as we've ever been able to do on an episode. You think? I think so. Yeah. I think I so think because we got we that. got into the weeds for both of us, and that was that was nice. And it, with good. someone who was willing to do it and had the uh, experience and wisdom to to speak into it. Too, did man. you get into the weeds? You got into the weeds. I felt like I did. With what? Um, I, with my anxiety about you know attaching that to certain outcomes and no noticing when it's taken off in my life and mm-hmm. how I get it get into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, his anxiety and shame thing, like if there are two main components of my life that drive, you know, historically have drive my feelings, those are them. <laughs> that shame has been such a curiosity to me. Like I don't, yeah. people say uh, they relate so much to shame and it's like, I yeah. can sense the truth. A lot of people a lot smarter yeah. than me say, say things like that, but um, I've never, the dots haven't connected. And then I was listening to Iron John yesterday yeah. and, he, and Robert Bly talks about shame. And he talks about, he said this fucking line. He goes, if your parents ever walked in on you in your room, you have, you have probably some shame issues. Huh. And I was like, yeah. whoa, like some bold statement. He built up to it. Right. So it's like, sure. So it's a, like a lot more of an integrated statement that he was making um, connected to what he was for. But um, fuck, I was just like, wow. So part of your brain as a child is really protective of your environment. That's your environment. And if someone during this formative period of your life invades that, even if they have the right to do so, that starts to get into shame. Like you, it starts to get into something's wrong. And I don't really understand totally how those dots connect around a lot of the discussion around shame, but I'm, I feel like I'm making some ground there because I think it also dominates some of my inner world. Yeah, I, I think you have dodged a bullet inadvertently by not being raised in a religious home that had a, a, the ultimate shame as the consequence for not living a perfect life. Yeah. And like Robert said, like every once in a while, even just looking at a look on his wife's face, suddenly there's the feeling of like, am I going to go to hell? And <clears throat> that's deep, man. That's a primal. And I think and I agree with what he said. That's child abuse. And to be spared from that is a, is a great gift. <laughs> it's yeah, a great at the gift. same time, we're all raised in a Christian uh, culture, you know, and to yeah. some, some extent. It's, well, to it's, some extent for sure, but, it, but there's a, depending on how Christian that was and then in the, in the yeah. uh, version of that, there is an indoctrination that goes deep, dude, that, yeah, that is no, like, yeah. it's, it's wild. Um, I've had a few friends who we've shared the experience of, being given a book, a certain title, I'm not even going to tell the, say the title, but it's this book about hell and this deep description. And apparently somebody was taken there and given, given a tour for our benefit so that we would know how real it is. And we were, you know, we read that when we were like 12, 13 years old, when like our formation of reality is happening in our brain and just scared the fuck out of us. I mean, just absolutely terrified us. And, And then you're always wondering, like, am I good enough? Am I good enough to make it to heaven? Am I good enough to not go to hell? 
this idea of whether or not we're good enough and how to what extent and in what situations you know i i didn't resonate with that for a long time just because it wasn't the words that worked for me but i i actually think that that was just a me not really being as as in touch with uh Mm. my inner world and my past and yeah i think that there is a lot of a lot of like little subtle but really potent ways that we get told that things are not going to work out that we're not up for the task that you know people want us to be better and so they focus a bunch on how we're not good but then that becomes the thing that we then focus on and our our reality becomes something we trust a parent telling us you know you're not this you're not that even if they want to do that so we'll be better it's like it's not so i i just I'm curious about that. I don't really understand how to start unpacking that really, but it's, it's fucking intense, man. Well, I want to come back before we jump off and I do need to go soon. Cause I've, man, I got to pee. I drank a lot of water while we're talking to Robert, <laughs> but, uh, what, what I didn't want to get away from was maybe you and I, inter- you know, we talked, we started this conversation before we started recording about a need for structure in our life. You know, we're yeah. really finally kind of understanding what yeah. to dial in. Yeah finally like okay these are the five six seven eight things i need to really be cognizant of in my life yeah took a long time to figure out what those are and now and now we need to bring structure to it and we've resisted that structure and i can't remember exactly what robert said around that you know if you didn't need it it would be easy i think is what he said paraphrasing around having structure in your life right things being difficult And, and I'd like to commit with you to entering into some kind of 90 day or 35 day or one week, even, Man. you know, kind of like commitment to just let's like, let's baby step our way into this. They yeah. call, call the show cutting for sign brother. And, yeah. And I was thinking today about a way I changed my life about two years ago where I promised myself I would paint for 80 days straight. Wow. And I got 78 in and I finished as many paintings in that time as I had in the five years before that, that I'd been painting and made a lot more money than I ever had and had a cohesive series. It just changed my life as an artist. And so when he was talking about the, the 90 days, you know, of the 12 steps. And I remember I had considered that period of time recovery. I was like, you know, I didn't put as fine a point on it and the structure around a 12 step, but I had considered it that, you know, cause I was like, I mean, like not doing what I need to do for myself recovery. Like I, and it changed things. And then I've been building up uh, to this moment kind of right now, because I had a lot to do for several months and now I've kind of got the time and capacity back um, to create my own schedule in life. And today I was going to write a list down of, the things that I know I need to do every day. And, you know, the other aspect of what you're saying right now is not only do we know the things and we spend a lot of time knowing what we would need to do, we've also put each one of those things on the front burner for times in our lives and put the other ones on the back burner and then rotated those. And I think for you and I, we're at a place where now we need everything kind of cooking, you know, it all needs to be there. And Yeah, a certain amount of intensity with it all. Uh, it needs to be there. Yeah. Everything needs to be wrapped. You know, it really does. And maybe there's a back burner for a second and there's some like taking things off heat and like, you know, a little more attention, but it's not like 
months of back burner, like yeah. writing, writing yeah. views have been on the back burner and it's like yeah. killing you, you know? And, you know, for me, there's some things that have done the same. So maybe we both make a list of, you know, maybe a short list, five to 10. That's plenty of things we know we need to do every day. And if it's a once a week thing, yeah, that's a good caveat. But like, maybe, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think uh, start with the list and then let's come back. Maybe we even do it on air, talk about it. Yeah. I love that. I love Solid, that. man. Another great episode. Appreciate your time today. Appreciate you sharing and letting uh, letting Robert talk to you about uh, the fear of the unknown. That's good well, stuff. In that, uh, in that spirit, let's say goodbye right now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.